Thriving, Not Surviving, with your host, Gina Gardner. To lead others, you first need to be the best version of yourself and lead from a place of wholeness. Motivation, empowerment, leadership, personal and spiritual development are just a few of the topics you will hear on Thriving, Not Surviving. So sit back and enjoy the show with your host, Gina Gardner. Hello there, and welcome to BBS Radio. I am absolutely thrilled today to be able to um, introduce my guest, Deborah Poneman, a very, very special lady, somebody who I've worked with through Year of Miracles. I found it amazing, and I'm absolutely thrilled that you come on the show. Thank you. I'm so thrilled to be here with you. It's lovely. Now, before I start, as you know, those of you that have watched my show before will know that I read the bio because it's so rich. I just don't want to miss anything. For over four decades, Deborah Bowman, best-selling author and founder of Yes to Success Seminars, has shared her system, now used by hundreds of thousands around the world, to live lives not only of success and abundance, but true happiness and deep inner fulfillment. Known as the mentor for mentors, Deborah's clients have used her formula to become mega successful entrepreneurs, renowned transformational leaders, New York Times bestselling authors, millionaires, billionaires, even household names. Yet, Deborah feels her greatest accomplishment is not just that she's helped so many live their dreams, but now at the same time that they've grown in self-love and contributed to a world that works for everyone. You are an amazing lady. And I'd like to start, if you would, by you sharing your story. Oh, boy, the story of my entire life? Well, <laughs> I think we need in 25 minutes the abridged version. I <laughs> like okay. We'll give you the abridged version. Well, I'll tell you how I started uh, speaking and, and uh, leading my seminars. Actually, what happened was that I was a meditation teacher for um, the first 10 years of my adult life. I don't know for ever adults, but what's supposed to be my adult life. And at the end of those 10 years, I realized that a uh, woman does not live by mantra alone. And I was working for a nonprofit organization and making like just enough, not even enough to make ends meet. And I realized I needed things like health insurance and car insurance, or, or maybe even a car to insure. So I decided that I was going to leave the meditation community that I was living in. And I was going to go out and make a lot of money so I could come back and I could continue to support this meditation community and teach meditation. Well, you know, the expression, we make plans and God laughs. Yep. So God had a big old laugh because I moved to Los Angeles and I started working selling investments and I was such a gigantic failure. I didn't even sell any, but <laughs> one day, one of my coworkers invited me to a money seminar and I thought it was going to be on how, was, how I could sell more of these investment vehicles. They were really tax shelters. So I walk in and it's not the suits that I expected. It was the new age crowd. And the gentleman was talking about the law of attraction. 
And I had never heard this before. This is 40 years ago. And he said that whatever our dominant thought is, we will, that we are thinking, we will be vibrating with the energy of that thought. So if we're always talking about how broke we are, how it's not going to get any better, and the economy is so awful, and I'll, I'll never fulfill my dreams, we vibrate with our thoughts. And then like a tuning fork, we can't attract anything into our lives except like thoughts like themselves. So what he suggested that we do is no matter what our life is like, that we should talk about the wonderful times to come. Mm -hmm. And that we should paint word pictures of what we're going to be doing when the wealth is pouring in. He even said that we should go down to Beverly Hills and that we should walk down the street in Beverly Hills and look at the houses and go, that's for me, and visualize ourselves driving the Bentleys down the street. So I was so excited. Oh, and by the way, another thing he said was that a way, another way to become wealthy and successful is by helping other people become wealthy and successful. Kind of like what you're doing here with your show. You are giving people the knowledge to become genuinely you and be a great leader. So he said that was one of the ways to become successful ourselves. Well, I was so blown away by this concept. I'd never heard of it before that. I went and quit my job the next day and I started um, researching the great masters who had spoken about success and prosperity, like Napoleon Hill Mm -hmm. and Wallace Waddles and Emmett Fox. And I realized there is this whole body of knowledge that laid out a blueprint exactly how you could create a life of success and prosperity and happiness. So I was like a kid in a candy store. And then what I did was I put together a seminar and I launched it. And, but I just want to add that one of the reasons why my seminar was so successful is that I used the principles that I learned from these great masters. Can I share a principle or two? Oh, that I Please do, please do. Okay. So one of the things that I used was that they said that when an idea comes to you, Do not go, first of all, it comes to you because you're supposed to be manifesting it, okay? That's why we all have different ideas. I didn't have an idea to have a show called Genuine Leaders or or a company that teaches about leadership. I had the idea to teach about success. That was the idea that came to me. I believe that God has no hands but yours. So I believe that the creator, the God of your understanding need something manifested on earth for the earth to work. So God whispers that idea into the ear of who seems to be a worthy vehicle. Okay. And so many people have had amazing ideas. They didn't do anything about it. A few years later, they see somebody did with their idea and they were incredibly successful. They could be millionaires, right? Yeah. Well, You kind of had first dibs on the idea. It was whispered to you, but it's whispered to you at a time that it needs to be manifested on the planet. So if you don't act on it, then God's got to go to the second stringer. So the idea came to me. And the other thing is that I didn't go around telling everybody what I was going to do, because one of the things I learned from these masters is that what is sacred should be kept secret. And if you have an idea that's going to um, fill a need or answer a gap in society, 
If you go around telling everybody what you're going to do, one of two things is going to happen. One is that people are going to say, oh, that's such a great idea. And then you have all of the accolades and you're like, wow, yeah, I'm really something. You haven't done anything yet, but you're feeling good about yourself, right? Your ego, haven't you? <laughs> right, right. Or the other thing that could happen is you run up against the discouragement committee. Those people who tell you all the reasons why you're not the person to do that and why your idea is not going to work. Yeah. So I didn't tell anybody what, what I was going to do. I what my sacred idea, I kept secret, sacred and secret come from the same root. So I kept my sacred idea yep. secret until it was time to manifest it. And then another thing that I learned from these great masters is you have to take a step from which there's no turning back. Because if you wait until you think you're ready, you will never think you're ready. There are always going to be loose ends because we live in a relative universe. So what I did is I, hey, I was 29 years old. I, the only thing I had done in my adult life was teach meditation. I was broke. I was driving a beat up old Chevy Bel Air that my aunt had left me 10 years before when she passed. Well, it was a 10 year old Chevy Bel Air that she left me when she passed away. And I was going to go and teach people how to say yes to success. But the greater had whispered it in my ear. So I knew it was mine to manifest. At least that's what these great masters taught me in their books. And um, there was no internet at the time, 40 years ago. So I had to go to the library and look at all up on microfiche, yeah. but that's another story. <laughs> Those of you who know what microfiche is, welcome to our generation. Who <laughs> <laughs> haven't got a clue what you're talking about? We'll leave it there, though. <laughs> yes, right. We'll leave it there, but we remember it. But in the meantime, you know, there is nothing as powerful as an idea whose time has come. And obviously, even though when I put up my posters, because that's what people do did back in 1980. As soon as I put up my posters, the discouragement committee showed up, told me why the idea wasn't going to work, but the posters were already up. I took a step from which there was no turning back, so I couldn't cancel my event, and I went in, and it was standing room only, and the rest is history. When next, In less than three years, my seminar was being taught. I was teaching it in 12 major U.S. cities. Um, I had the first infomercial that sold a self-improvement product in the history of infomercials. And I had reps teaching on four continents. Again, that was when we used to communicate with phones, with curly cords, you know, attached to the wall. So so that's it. So that's my story. And, And I'm sticking to it. It's an amazing story. And I think particularly as people, um, you know, when people are struggling, it's very easy for them to focus on what they can't do and how it wouldn't be possible and how, you know, it's for other people. What, who am I to do it? And I think the thing that I take from that is that, you know, when that idea is whispering to you, listen, get away from the white noise, give yourself quiet time so you can actually hear that inner voice say to you, how about? Isn't it time to? Yes. But I'm really interested because there are you that you have amazing success from this. But my understanding is that you walked away. (laughs) I did. Well, you know, one of the main principles that I teach in Yes to Success, and of course, I've been teaching basically the same principles for 40 years because they have withstood the test of time. But one of the things that I teach is to follow your heart. Even if your heart is saying to go in a completely different direction from your mind. 
So your mind is filled with past impressions and shoulds and shouldn'ts and things that you were told as a child about yourself that are not true. But then you're about to make a decision and your your mind is just filled with all of that nonsense. So you make your decisions based on that. What I tell people to do is actually move physically from your head to your heart and ask your heart, okay, what is the right thing to do in this situation? And then trust your heart. And even though I was at the top of my game, I was actually about to have my own daytime TV talk show. And my Yes to Success book was in the hands of a major U.S. publisher. Um, Something happened that completely rocked my world. And I gave it up all up for about almost 21 years. And what happened was, was that my daughter was born. And even though I had been traveling the world with all the fervor of an evangelical preacher, follow your heart. I thought, oh my gosh, my heart is with this baby. I don't want to go get up at five o'clock in the morning to do a TV show. I don't want to go on a tour. I was supposed to go to Southeast Asia to give my seminars. As a matter of fact, the guy Chiang, he was my promoter in Southeast Asia. And he called me, he said, hey, I heard you have the baby. Come on, let's get the tour on the books. And I said, Tim Chiang, you're going to have to call me back in 18 years. <laughs> because here's the thing, Gina, and you know this, people have authenticity meters, right? Yes. And if I told people to follow their hearts and my heart was with that little baby girl and I was out teaching success all over the world, my authenticity meter would be way down in the negative range. And people know it's not what you're flapping about. It is who you are being in your heart. And I had to be true to my own teaching. So um, I your one's definition of success does change through your life. And being a successful, loving parent, and I'm not anyone who's listening, this is a working mom and doing all of those things. That's your choice. And so long as it's right for you, then great. But if it feels heavy, if anything feels like you're walking through treacle and it doesn't feel authentic, you have to listen, don't you? And I have to say a couple of things about that. And that is, yes, the way to true success is always listening to the impulses of your heart. And people could say, well, but the reality is I have to work. Now, I don't say that everybody should be a mom at home. First of all, I had a husband who made a nice living. So I didn't have to work to make money at that point. So I want people to know, and I appreciate it. And I have so much gratitude to him that he was very supportive of my, my choice, but also not everybody should be a mom at home. My kids love when I'm out achieving. They love saying, that's my mom. My daughter is a very successful chiropractor now and and, and is um, making some moves to do some more in the business world. And she is my biggest fan. She loves when I'm successful. So it's not that everybody should be a mom at home. But what I say is follow your heart to the best of your ability. And um, that's what I did. I could have kept working as a continued ego stroke (laughs) because I had a lot of accolades from the world. But the truth is, and I just have to be honest, to me, one, I love you, mommy, was worth more than a thousand standing ovations. So 
I just stopped studying Napoleon Hill and Wallace Waddles. And I just surrendered to learning from the two gurus who called me mom. I think that's wonderful. And I do appreciate that for some that the choice is not as clear cut as that. But whatever you do, I think it's if you do it with authenticity, then it's going to turn out better. So if you are in a situation where you, your circumstances are that you have to work, that doesn't mean you can't do it with full heart and recognize that actually the choice is being made open to you, that you do the best you can with those circumstances. Can I share a story of a, uh, something that happened to me when I was home with the kids? I'd love right. you to. Thank you. So um, you know, people always say to me, did I ever doubt my decision to stay home? I mean, you have to realize that my students went on to be millionaires, billionaires, um, New York Times bestselling authors, some even household names. And I remember, I mean, here they were at their big launch parties in New York for their New York Times bestselling book, while I was knee deep in dirty diapers or running around at Chuck E. Cheese. I don't know if you have Chuck E. Cheese. No. Uh, and Do you? No, no. <laughs> no, you're lucky. It's one of those places that all the games they put in the tokens and you get oh, the tickets. Okay, right, yeah. And and you trade them in for ridiculous prizes. You know, they were in New York at their launch party, and I was running around after my kids at Chuck E. Cheese. And they have these big characters like this guy Chucky with the big mouse head and a chunk of cheese on his head. So, you know, it was like a little bit of a contrast. But the other thing about it is that I you know, people say, did you doubt? And I say, of course I doubted, right? I mean, I'm human. And I saw what was going on in my friends' lives. And I remember this one day, Gina, like it was yesterday, I was, my kids were maybe two and four or five. I can't remember. They were little. Daniel was still in diapers and they were inconsolable. And they were so ornery that day. They Nothing can make them happy. So I decided I'm putting these kids in front of the TV. I didn't usually do that, but this was a TV day. So I put them on the couch and they want to watch Barney. Barney's this big thing, um, uh, dinosaur, big purple dinosaur. And they're like, wheels, Barney, wheels, Barney, because they want to watch Barney. And my daughter couldn't say her R's. So I was like, I'm getting you, Barney, just hold on. And I'm doing a channel check. And I swear to you, while I was turning the dial, yes, there was a dial. I see one of my students on Oprah. (laughs) And not only was my student on Oprah, but he was doing this demonstration for Oprah, showing her the power of the mind using a demonstration that I had actually cognized in a meditation and taught in my seminars. Now, It was fine that he was showing it to Oprah because when I retired to be with the kids, I said, take my stuff. World needs it. You don't have to give me credit. Just go for it. So there was nothing wrong with him showing it to Oprah. But there's Oprah going, oh, my goodness, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. I'm going to show this to my whole staff. And there's me with these two kids on the couch. Right. He gets Oprah. I I can understand that that might very well have just tipped you over the edge on that. Right, it did. And I started crying. I did. I was standing in front of the TV. I'm like, oh, yeah, how could this be? I ruined my life. And the only thing that that kind of like shook me out of my self-imposed pity party was my little girl, Deanna. She goes, mommy, I go, yeah, sweetheart. She says, I think you forgot our popsicles. <laughs> <laughs> And wait, there's more to the story. So I said, yes, I did. So I found Barney and I went in the kitchen and I met a God. I'm like, 
that was supposed to be my book. That was supposed to be, you know, and I was like really, really upset with God. Like God tricked me, you know? And, and then God said, and when I say God said, it's like, I got this little impulse to remember the book. I said, I am remembering the book. And then there's a little impulse that said, no, not that book. And I saw a vision of a book that I had read several years before about a man who had died and then he came back and he shared his experience on the other side. And what he said was that he had gone through that dark tunnel of light and there was a being of light on the other end. And the being of light said to him, would you like to see a like a movie real highlight of all of the high points of your life? And he said, well, yes, I would. He was kind of indignant. He was kind of a jerk anyway. And so it was a really short reel and it only showed him. Um, dancing with his daughter at her wedding and showing his son how to swing a baseball bat, just a couple of the things. And the man goes, what about the time I brought my company public? And what about the time it started being traded on the stock exchange? And what about that? And the being of light said, all of those moments glorified you. And then the being of light said, would you like to see the life of somebody else who just passed over and still indignant? The guy's like, yes, I would. And he says in the book, that these curtains of golden light parted and they're sitting on a throne of golden light was the woman who used to take two or three buses to get to his house to clean, to clean his toilets basically and clean his floors and, and clean his dishes. And um, the being of light said, would you like to see the highlights of her life? And the man said, yes, I would. And it was an endless reel it showed her carrying a pot of soup to a sick friend. It showed her um, stroking her mother's hair as her mother was making her transition. It showed her comforting a child who had been bullied, who was inconsolable. It showed her cheering at the baseball games for the kids whose parents couldn't be there because they had to work two or three jobs just to put food on the table. And it showed her just going to church and hugging everyone up and saying, how you doing today? And the being of light said, you judged her as being such a sad creature, but she had a glorious life. And when you get here, you discover that the only thing that matters while you're on earth is how much love you give. I think that story gives, I've heard it before. It gives me chills as much as now when I hear it again. And I hope everybody who is watching or listening this really takes that on board. Because ultimately, if you live your life from a place of love, you can't go wrong. And yet we see so much evidence, don't we, of division and fear and hate. And it doesn't, it just needs to stop. Now, I am very conscious of time. And I've got one question that I'd like to ask you before I ask you around how people can um, get to, to speak to you or, or work with you. And that is, you've given up everything more than once, haven't you? I mean, come on now, there's, this is not quite a pattern, but we're getting there. So tell me, you, you started again, you were very successful again, and then you took a step back. Why? Well, I didn't actually take a step back. And it's interesting. I actually took a step forward. And I know what you're referring to. So I came back and I was blessed to come back on top. Why was I able to come back on top? Because I had built what I call relationship capital. And yeah. that is people who I had helped 
decades ago who remembered. And then when I came back, they wanted to offer me the same opportunities that I had offered them. And one of them was um, the founder of Your Year Miracles. My co-founder, actually, of Your Year Miracles was Marcy Shimoff. She had the idea to do this year-long program. And when she heard that I was back on the scene, she invited me to um, launch Your Year of Miracles. And it was glorious. And it still is glorious. It's an amazing program, Your Year of Miracles. done it. Right. Just yes. fantastic program. And um, and we created it together and we did it together for five full years. But kind of around the middle of the fifth year, I realized that it was time for me to move on. I realized that because I'm a creator and I love creating things. OK. Mm-hmm. And it was so good. There is no reason to create anything different right? The, the presentations were great. The structure was great. It was, it rocked and it still rocks. But for me being a creative, it wasn't fulfilling anymore. So I decided that I was going to tell Marcy that I wanted to move on. And everyone thought again, that I had gone completely out of my mind because not only were there thousands of students from, I think at the time we had 72 countries, it was extremely lucrative. It was just growing and growing every year. And um, it wasn't fulfilling my heart anymore. So what I believe is that when that little voice says to you, it's time to move on, whether it's a business, whether it's a place where you're living, whether it's a relationship, whether it's a marriage, when that voice says, this ain't ain't working anymore. I mean, you could work on it, but if that voice keeps coming back and saying, "Uh, time to move on, you know, the old expression, first, it's a little nudge, then you're going to be, then it's a push, then it's a two by four. And don't wait till it gets to be a Mack truck. Don't wait until your life has to fall apart in order to move on. Do it when it's the nudge. And it's so cute, because I remember saying to Marcy that I wanted to leave you. No, you're the only person I could do with this with and I reminded her one of the our main principles that we teach and that is when you do what's best for yourself it'll always be what's best for everyone else but only a hundred percent of the time and of course she knew that and um what was so great was that I created that space when I moved on and it got filled with the amazing Sue Mortar and the wonderful Lisa Gar and some incredible support people and um but can I just say one more thing? I want to be conscious of the time. Can I add one more thing to it? Can indeed. Okay. So I remember when Marcy and I announced my departure through the uh, Year of Miracles community, I shared my process on the call. And subsequently, many people emailed me exclaiming how impressed they were that I had the courage to follow my heart and give up this very successful and lucrative gig. And they said that they wished they were that create- courageous But I really don't want to be put on any kind of pedestal and make it seem like it was a cakewalk for me because the decision to move on and trust the universe was a huge, huge deal for me. It was very hard. I mean, it took me months to even be able to say anything to Marcy. And Marcy's a very nice person. But it was like, but if you want to live genuinely you, you can't give into that fear. It's so important in our authentic journeys. And I remember the um, the great Lisa Nichols once saying, you will be afraid when you take a leap, yeah. but it's not because it's the wrong dream if you're afraid. It's the right dream when you're afraid. See, this is where most people get stopped, but 
but your dreams just have to be bigger than you. And my dream was to go back and teach yes to success again, because that was what was then burning in my heart. And, um, and I did it and it did turn out to be what was best for everybody else. And I realized something else. I realized the reason why it took so long. I said, oh, because I didn't want to disappoint Marcy. But I realized that that was a little bit not true. It was that I didn't want to feel the discomfort of disappointing Marcy, right? I think, I mean, we're coming to the end and I'm, I'm, I'm itching to talk more, but I can't because we've got to stop. Um, so you'll have to come back and talk us about about the next stage. But I just want to finish before I say to you, where can people find you? Is if you quash your creativity in order to please other people, and so many people do, that day by day you start to die inside. Absolutely. And the discomfort of stepping outside your comfort zone. I'd say, you know, it's it's unfamiliar rather than uncomfortable. But actually, the, the danger of staying stuck means that you just become completely stultified. And yes, it does require a bit of courage. But actually, the alternative is just too awful to contemplate. <laughs> That's a, well said, my dear. The yes. alternative, you don't even want to think about it because no. it never turns out well. No. So very quickly, where can people find you? Well, the name of my company is Yes to Success. So it's Y-E-S-T-O, not the number two, yes2success.com. And um, that's where I am. If people want to contact me, there's a contact form. But everything I'm up to is on that uh, website. I teach a, I, I teach my Yes to Success course. I also have an Evergreen. I also teach um, a course called Ageless, which are anti-aging secrets, which has become our most popular course. And um, can I give people a free gift? Oh, that would be wonderful. Thank you. Okay, because I have, I wrote an ebook. Remember when I said my book was in the hands of a New York publisher? I never went back and finished it, but I took the essence of that book and I put it into an ebook and it's really good. And you just get it at yes to success.com forward slash ebook. Brilliant. We're going to have to stop there. It's been an absolute delight. Thank you very much indeed. Listeners, don't go away because immediately after the break, it's a genuine conversation with Rachel and I. But Deborah, Thank you, my darling. Thank you. And we'll have you back again on the show as soon as you want to come. Thank Thank you so much. So much love to you. My pleasure. Thank you. If you're a businesswoman who is overwhelmed or suffering from imposter syndrome, who is tired of having one disastrous relationship after another, or who finds it hard just to say no. Well, it's time to take care of you. You get the best out of life by contacting Gina Gardner, relationship coach and best-selling author and motivational speaker. Just visit genuinely-u.com or you can email Gina directly at Gina at genuinely-u.com. Take action now. Start to thrive rather than simply survive.
Imagine being a highly successful, enlightened leader who is in complete alignment with your best self, who makes a positive difference on a daily basis. Let me introduce Gina Gardner, an expert in developing transformational leadership with over 30 years of experience. Gina has developed a unique and unrivaled approach to help you step into your genuine power to become an enlightened leader. And when you do, amazing things happen. Go to enlightenedleadership.co or email Gina at gina at genuinely-u.com. And welcome back. This is the second part of the show where I'm joined by my good friend Rachel Davidson and we talk about a particular theme. And today's theme is all about learned helplessness, both in the personal life and also your professional life. What do I mean by learned helplessness? Well, have you ever come across people who will, whose immediate response is, I don't understand or I can't do that? And what they're waiting for is for you to rescue them, that you will rush in and say, it's all right, I'll do it. And that becomes a habit for them and a habit for you. And the problem with that as an approach is that they never learn to do it for themselves and they start to believe that they're not going to understand and they start to believe that they can't possibly do it. Put that into the work context and you have many leaders of teams and organisations where they are run ragged because everybody wants them to confirm or deny that what the, uh, the team or the team member is doing is okay. And the leader becomes the absolute arbiter of standards mm -hmm. and people take no responsibility for that. Now, the challenge with that is twofold. Firstly, the leader can't get on to be strategic because they're so busy, immersed in the operational side of things, being the judge of whether something is good, bad or indifferent. But what's equally important, if not more so, is that they are training their staff not to think for themselves, to be helpless, to have no sense of taking responsibility and ownership for individual performance and shared responsibility for the performance of everyone. And as a result of that, everything becomes leader is that instead of being able to get on strategically with what they're doing, that they end up being totally immersed in the operational side of things, being the arbiter of what's good, bad or indifferent. The reality is that if you want people to think for themselves and to be the judge of their own performance, and to have a, a sense of ownership of their own performance and a shared ownership of the performance of the team or the organisation, then you have to develop a culture where people feel safe to get it wrong. Now, I don't mean to get it wrong endlessly, <laughs> but to get it wrong and to learn from that, because we all learn better from our mistakes than we actually do deep learning when things go right, because we don't question it. So learned helplessness is one of those things that for all of us, we need to be very mindful 
both in terms of are we supporting other people's learned helplessness or are we engaging in learned helplessness ourselves? And I know I'm guilty of that, particularly when it comes to technology. Mm. There are lots of times that I'll come to you or I'll come to, um, to my technical team and say, I don't understand. And the reality is I don't understand. But I am very inclined to let other people do it mm. rather than learn. Mm. And so I think all of us have our particular areas where we have learned habits of helplessness. So, Rachel, mm. for you, what does learned helplessness look like and what are the implications? Um, in my experience, all learned helplessness comes from um, a sense of fear. It's the once bitten, twice shy scenario. And in my experience, it's because of an autocratic controlling leadership style where if anybody shows initiative or goes off the path that the leader is wishing, they're, they're punished severely um, in some sense, um, such that um, the leader feels that um, you know, he, they've done the right thing, controlled the team, ensured success, whatever the justification is in, in their head, of course. And, um, and what it does is it suppresses um, the other individuals into not thinking yeah. because it, it's demonstrated um, that when, when you thought and did something um, slightly off track, it was not, it was not welcomed. No. And, and more than that, there was a threat possibly in all this. So um, it, it's a terribly frustrating place to be. I've worked in teams that are terribly helpless because of the leader's style. And the irony is that the leader, certainly in my experience, would get more and more frustrated at the, the, the stupidity of his team. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and not seeing how he was creating the circumstances around him, not, not wishing to hear feedback around, yeah, but when, when you bit Tom's head off for doing something that was quite reasonable, but yeah, not quite what you'd asked, but actually, if you'd have thought about it, um, when, when that kind of feedback was given, again, a very rigid defensive stance was taken. So, you, you know, you, you quickly learn with people like that to, to if, you, if you're stuck earning money from them, to just, just be helpless in the sense that don't, don't think. You're not being paid to think. It's that you're not paid to think, you're both paid to do. And so what you do is you become very childlike and, and you simply... Uh, do the, the face value of what you have been asked and you certainly don't think about any of but hang on a minute is this the best way or yeah. have they considered this or there's this coming along isn't there yeah. oh god don't tell him that there's something coming along wait for him to find out yeah i think you know you're absolutely right and the challenge i think particularly for businesses today is that we are within a, a situation of fast-paced change mm. And that it, everything is reliant upon one person to be the fount of all knowledge and to be the person who is the arbiter of, of everything. The, the pace at which you can respond and anticipate to that change mm. is dictated by the person who is the one who everybody looks to to have all the answers. Mm. And in reality, nobody has all the answers. And I think that the, the, the needing to be seen to be right for many leaders is where this starts mm. that you know if i do it myself then at least i know it's done properly mm. and you know recognizing that in the development of people thinking for themselves and ideally what you want is a, a highly skilled 
um, and honed team who have the capacity to think for themselves and outside the box, but within the parameters that you as a leader create so it's safe for the business, Mm -hmm. then that's the ideal because you not only have the leader's view and experience and expertise, but you can actually... um, embrace all of the expertise and enthusiasms and skill set of all of the people involved. Yeah, I mean, there are, there are definite examples in society where uh, such a collaborative, sort of um, creative, um, let's sit around and talk about it moments, they're just not applicable. I mean, the army, for instance, there is, there is a very good reason why when you go into the army, you are deliberately broken down. The the training is all based around removing a sense of independence in in regard to making decisions. So, you know, especially at the extreme levels where, you know, the elite forces where you have you are allowed to think, but only within set parameters, very clear parameters. And you're certainly not allowed to question outside of that moment because obviously if you're sent sent in as an elite force to do something that is highly dangerous they want you to just follow out follow the orders and and yes you know make decisions in the sense that if some circumstances change and that would make the orders impossible then move within certain parameters to then increase the chances of success whatever but but again not to actually just stop and say why am i doing this what you know so certain society, pieces of society, brain surgeons, you know, critical pilots, people who are working in highly dangerous environments such as nuclear power stations or chemical plants. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. In certain circumstances, there is a way, a set way. But actually, even if we look at those, there will be circumstances. There will be, there will be some kind of circle going on, yeah. not in the actual front line, possibly, to continue the military analogy. But if they if they are wanting to stay relevant, then there always has to be this feedback loop of, are we doing the right thing? Is it still working? Yeah. Is, is this there the best way, way to train a, a, a massive soldier? Is, is this the best way to do this brain surgeon? And systems always fail when there isn't that understanding of if we exclude everything to just what we know, what we know, yeah. well, frankly, listen. we would still think that the sun went around the earth. Yeah, it's only because humanity questions and isn't fundamentally helpless that we have yeah. development. And I think you know when things in those industries where things are going well and people stick to the rules, then that's fine. But as soon as things start to break down because there's been a malfunction, then you need people who can think on their feet within the parameters of understanding the industry and the, the, the geography, if you like. Yeah. But I'd like to take it for a moment. Let's take it back into the family situation. Uh-huh. You have a toddler. The toddler is determined to dress themselves and you're in a hurry. And like all toddlers, they don't know their left and their right. They don't know how to tie up their shoelaces. Mm-hmm. And they um, they struggle um, to get it right. Mm-hmm. Now, I can remember if I go back to my school time as a principal, as a head teacher, of having the conversation with parents and saying to them, there are times when you need to let children struggle. 
not too much, not to the point where they are completely overwhelmed. But if you rush in and you save them yeah. at the first sign that things are a little bit tricky, uh-huh. they're not going to learn resilience. Yeah. And I think in today's modern world, one of the things that the skill sets that we, is it a skill set? I'm not sure. But what we need is the capacity to get up and try again when something doesn't work. And I think the danger is that we, for to a large extent in many organisations, it's a nanny state that people don't think for themselves. And then when the proverbial hits the fan, that people aren't resourced either to think outside the box or to manage when what they expect doesn't happen. It's quite a compelling message to, to some mindsets, isn't it? Yeah. If, if, for example, I had the mindset where I actually didn't want to do that much with my life and I was quite happy to do the barest minimum, then it's a very compelling mindset to to say, oh, you can't do this and, and don't worry, somebody else will do it. Mm-hmm. and It's somebody else's fault and you don't have yeah. to do the work. Just look for somebody else to do the work for you. And Because ultimately that's often easier. It's not better. And it often <laughs> feels easier. easy. In the moment. In, in the moment. But the trouble with it as an approach is actually that bit may get easier. But ultimately, life gets more difficult because the parameters of your life, instead of opening up and being full of possibilities, they get closed down and become narrower and narrower and narrower to the point where it's completely unsatisfying. So if you think of that toddler, if that toddler takes the decision that they're never going to learn to dress themselves and, and, you know, an extreme example decides that that is literally going to be the case for the rest of their life, then as a 30-year-old who can't dress themselves... Well, I'm reminded of two conversations when I was a principal. One was with a parent who um, who was taking um, issue with the fact that we asked children to wear uh, plimsolls or trainers for PE. Mm. And at that time, you, there was um, you could get those with uh, laces, mm-hmm. and you could get those with Velcro. Mm-hmm. I've no doubt that's still the case. Mm-hmm. And having the discussion with the parent who said, "Well, I'm only going to buy him Velcro because he struggles to tie his shoelaces," mm-hmm. and I said to her, "You know, what are you going to do when he's a 30 year old man, um, and you know he's got a good job? Um, is he only going to wear shoes that have got Velcro fastenings? Mm-hmm. Um, is he never going to learn to tie his shoelaces?" You know, if you take the time now, that's a skill that he will have that will not only help him with his laces, but you know there are other times when tying a bow or a knot is really, really helpful. Yeah. And at the time, she was really quite cross with me. <laughs> Interestingly, later on, she came to see me. This is um, as the, the pupil got to the end of his school life where he was reliant upon her for everything and wouldn't do his homework on his own, wouldn't um, actually do pretty much anything on his own. And she was worried about him going up into the next school Mm. and how would he cope because the children started to make fun of him. And you have to consider the long-term effect of sticking with a process where you don't give people an opportunity to think. To grow. Now. The issue is that not only is it a challenge for the people involved, uh-huh. it's also a challenge for the leader because to start with, you have to wean them away from a behaviour that actually you have um, 
deepened oh. by the very way in which you uh, you have um, helped them um, grow into learned helplessness. Well, yeah, you have to win back their trust that when you say, actually, no, I do want you to think for yourself, that you're not going to punish them for it. That's one thing, that actually that it's safe to think for yourself. Mm. I, mean, I do think that this isn't just about casting people off and saying, go and do it alone. No. It is about setting very clear parameters and rewarding the behaviours that you want mm -hmm. and explaining when they're not why. And I think the reason mm. why is vital in all of this. And do it in small steps. It's not that you just cast people adrift and say, get on with it, mm. but you create parameters, you create a learning environment. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the best ways to do that is open questions. So when they come and say, is this all right? Saying, what do you think? Mm. And when they give you the answer, so tell me, what have you based that judgment on? What mm. are you looking for? Mm -hmm. Or having a conversation in terms of saying to individuals and to the whole star, um, we want this to be a learning environment. So you're going to teach other people. And part of that teaching um, is to help other people understand what they've got to do, why they're doing it, and how they do it. Yeah. And by increasing people's awareness of how to learn and how to teach, then everybody starts to think for themselves. And that learned helplessness can be turned around into learned collaboration, mm. learned independence, learned responsibility. Mm. And I'd urge anyone listening to this, if you're a parent and you have children, encourage them age and ability appropriate mm -hmm. to take responsibility for the things that they can do. And it might be a bit messy to start with, but ultimately it will pay off. Yeah, and if you're a leader that cannot accept that other human beings have good ideas and good inputs... You're not a leader. Then, then you probably need to just lead robots. You're not, a, in my opinion, you're not a leader, and you're certainly not an enlightened leader. Mm. Because if you are so insecure that the only opinion that you're going to value is yours, then it's time to do something about that. And, you know, in a, the Enlightened Leadership Programme is all about helping people lead in an enlightened way and not only be able to have the confidence to do it, but to have the tools to do it. Mm. So, so thank you very much for joining us today. Really love to have you and we'll see you in the next show. Um, Rachel Davidson is a great novelist. She has written mm. two spiritual novels, The Point of Me and The Truth of Her. Number three is well on the way and I can't wait uh, <laughs> to read it. Um, I've written lots of, of self-help books, both in terms of personal and, um, and in terms of, of leadership. You can find all of those books at Amazon, but you can also find them on uh, the genuinely-u.com website. If you're interested in enlightened leadership, then it's enlightenedleadership.co. Look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks very much. Take care now.